Sean Arkunis, and welcome to Music Speaks, the podcast that is dedicated to how music impacts one person's life. I believe that many people have a playlist that makes their life unique through music. And I would like to introduce my co-host for the second season of the show, Hunter Sagona. Ciao, Sean. And here is a musical quote for today. I think my principal tools now are leading rather than chastising, inspiring rather than dispiriting. I'm also grateful for the fact that I don't have to feel that I am false or phony about it. The music is worth more than I am. I don't use inspiration as a tool. I think I'm inspired too. I hope it's the music speaking through me, Robert Shaw. And from one iconic music educator to another, let me introduce today's guest on Music Speaks. My guest today is a musician who I've gotten the pleasure to know throughout my own career. This educator has a profound impact on so many students, myself included. Originally from Norwalk, Connecticut, Mr. Lamb studied horn with Mr. Robert Brewer before attending the University of Connecticut, where he he received degrees in music education, BA Music, and BS Education in 2009. While at UConn, Mr. Lamb studied with Mr. Robert Hoyle, and served as principal horn for the university's wind ensemble and symphony orchestra. Mr. Lamb was a founding member of the Armonia Brass Trio in 2008. The trio was awarded the SURF grant to conduct research in chamber performance practices with professional musicians in Barcelona, Zurich, Geneva, and Milan. Mr. Lamb received his master's of music degree in horn performance and pedagogy from the University of Colorado Boulder in 2011. Studying horn under Mr. Michael Thornton, Mr. Lamb served as the graduate assistant to the horn studio where he performed with the university's wind symphony and symphony orchestra, instructed horn performance and education majors, and performed with the graduate student Flat Irons Brass Quintet. Woo! In May of 2011, the Flat Irons Brass Quintet were residents at Renmin University of China in Beijing, where the quintet performed recitals and presented master classes. Mr. Lamb marched with the 2005 Crossmen and the 2007 Boston Crusaders and has taught many Connecticut marching groups, including Rockville High School, Cheshire High School, Trumbull High School, yay, Trumbull, East Haven High School, and the 7th Regiment Drum and Bugle Corps. Mr. Lamb previously served as an adjunct professor of horn at Sacred Heart University and played with the faculty brass quintet. Currently, Mr. Lamb is in his 10th year as instrumental music director at Valley Regional High School and group lessons teacher at John Winthrop Middle School in Deep River, Connecticut, and resides in Guilford, Connecticut with his wife and three children. Additionally, Mr. Lamb is the owner of Vietnam's Cafe, located on the Guilford Green. Hey, Kevin, how you doing? I'm well, I'm well. How about you guys? 
We're both good. Uh, we're both sort of staying yeah, sane well. right now during this period of quarantine. And uh, my first question to you is, how are you staying sane right now during the quarantine? Um, I don't know if I've actually stayed sane during this quarantine. So, <laughs> so out of school since um, mid-March, and um, you know, I've got three young kids who are in daycare, and they their school closed down as well. Mm. Um, so it's been daddy daycare uh, since. March, so actually yesterday, yesterday was the first day back at school, and I cannot tell you how wonderful it was. Like, I love my children, but I got so much stuff done. I had, like, a quiet, like, a quiet lunch to myself, um, so just try to be busy, run around with the kids, and um, enjoy the, the few moments that I have of silence, but we're, 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 we're making it through. Yeah. How are you staying productive during this time? Do you feel like you're able to get stuff done, or... Does you, do you feel like it's sort of like weighing you down through the quarantine a little bit? Um, well, I try to schedule um, anything that I need to get done either at nighttime when um, my wife is at home or when the kids are asleep okay. or when they're napping. Uh, and I, I need those nap times. So everything really revolves around the kids right now, um, sure. just with their schedules um, and lining stuff up. But um, when school was still in session, I was still, you know, grading and assigning work and all that kind of stuff. So that got a little bit, uh, taxing just with the kiddos and then finding time to get all that stuff done. Uh, but now that school's over, it's a little bit easier. And now that the kids are back in daycare, it's even way easier to get stuff done and being productive. Right. So most people who know you understand that you are a hard worker and a very focused musician. Um, who or what inspired you to be more persistent at your craft? Um, hmm. that's a great question. I think it's just all my teachers. Um, I studied with a, a horn teacher in Norwalk when I went to school in Norwalk um, way back in 2000, 2004 was when I graduated. Um, so my, my horn teacher at the time was actually my, my middle school band director and was the person that inspired me to join band. Um, so I'll, maybe I'll talk about that later. But uh, I went to, I had him for all of high school and then I went to UConn. And then when I was at UConn, um, my horn teacher at the time, Bob Hoyle, who just retired from UConn actually, um, just kind of a little fire under my butt um, and made me kind of work hard and, you know, it didn't come so easy for me. So he really made sure I worked hard, set good goals. And then I decided that, you know what, well, maybe it's something I want to look into um, and then applied for an audition for all these other graduate programs, uh, ended up at CU Boulder on uh, Colorado and finished out my two-year master's program there. So I think it's just a, a series of really inspiring teachers and actually really inspiring um, peers that helped kind of motivate me and keep me on my toes throughout my schooling um, and into my professional career. Right. Hunter, I'll let you take over if you want to ask a question. Um, sure. Uh, well, you mentioned that, um, you know, you guys have a lot, uh, between you and your wife, you know, you, you have a lot going on plus the kids and, uh, what, what does your wife do? Um, well, so to, to add more to that, we actually just opened up a, a Vietnamese restaurant in September of last year. Hmm. Um, so in addition to my full-time job as a high school band director, the future I'm also doing. Um, I'm also doing a lot of stuff with the restaurant, like logistical, like you know, taxes and payroll and hiring and all that kind of stuff. Um, but my wife was working at the restaurant, but ever since uh, COVID happened, 
she actually went back to her other job at Yale New Haven Hospital as a pharmacy technician. Oh, okay. Because as if you all didn't have enough to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so just add more to the plate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That was interesting, yeah. So, Kevin, I need to ask you this, because we usually get into the nitty-gritty on this show. Right. Um, what is it like to own your cafe? loaded questions yeah loaded question um in the beginning it definitely had a lot of down just because there's so much to 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 think about so much to organize um and to kind of get into a groove um so the beginning of it was very very difficult um and then once we kind of hit our groove about like january so covid happened um, so we closed down for a month just to kind of let things ride out, and then we opened back up again. Um, but I, I think the restaurant in general, I, I think, well, in the restaurant industry, it's, it's harder because it's just a lot of late hours, a lot of, like I said, organization, um, especially since we don't have any experience. We don't have any formal experience in that field. So it's just kind of doing what we think is correct. Um, but if I could go back and, into the future – I would probably tell myself, hey, this is a great idea, but maybe not a great idea with three children and a full-time job uh, and with a looming pandemic on its way. Yeah. Uh, we're in it now. We have no other choice well, but to, yeah. and to, to, to keep trucking along. Right. Yeah. yeah. So let's start at the beginning here. Who inspired you, who inspired you to start playing music? So, yep. So actually to go back on uh, who I mentioned earlier, it was my middle school band director. Um, so I had originally wanted to sign up for strings in elementary school. You know, I was like, oh, mom, I want to play the violin. And she's like, no, nah, you don't want to play the violin. It's too expensive. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'll just do choir, which is fine. And I really like singing. Um, so going from fifth into sixth grade, which is when we switched to middle school, I had signed up for choir. Mm. Um, but I actually, I remember very distinctly the day that the middle school band director came down to the elementary school with a whole bunch of, you know, sixth graders. Uh, they had all their instruments, whatever, and they put on a little demo lesson for us. Um, and I was like, I really want to be in band. I, this is awesome. And that's the day I switched from choir to band. Mm. Uh, and so when I got to middle school, we had three options of instrument. Oh, we got to pick three options. For my first choice was trumpet. Oh. My second was trombone. Mm. And my third was tuba. Mm. So my primary instrument in French horn wasn't even on my radar. I was like, I have no idea what that thing is. I want to play the trumpet. Um, so I did trumpet for my first year of sixth grade. And then my, my band director again was like, hey, we have a lot of trumpet players, but not a lot of horn players. Um, is there any, are there any trumpet players that want to switch to horn? I was like, eh, I'll give it a try. My mom just bought me a trumpet, whatever. But I want to try the French horn. And that day was the day that I made the switch full-time to French horn. And I think the rest is history. Um, I think if I did not switch to horn, I think my musical career would have led me in a very different path. Um, but that's that's where it all got started. It was from my middle school band director and horn teacher. And if it wasn't for him, I, I think I'd just be in a very different, um, I did very different position than what I am now. Right. As a follow-up question, um, if there was an instrument you were going to choose instead of horn, what would it be? The bassoon. The bassoon. Yes. Well, well, in high school, I got to, yeah, we had uh, one bassoon player, but he was a tenor player who doubled on bassoon. So like, I was like, oh, that's a really funky looking instrument. Um, but it wasn't until grad school I, I heard some really great bassoon players. Like, oh my gosh, it's just 
such a wonderful and unique like timbre and just really cool repertoire um so i'm hoping that one of my kids will pick up the bassoon um as their primary instrument but it also comes with a pretty hefty price tag (laughs) well it does you're right actually it's funny i had my uh one of the people who um i took lessons from when i was much younger took lessons for a long time from him and he was saying how he taught for like a couple years in the public system and he said, you know, they really needed like um, the, the lower section of the orchestra, and they couldn't get any of the instruments. So he was. So I went to the football team, and I said, "Which of you are failing?" And obviously, this was years ago. And so, of course, you know, this big, uh, big chooch walks out, and he's like, um, "You need a passing grade." <laughs> he was like, "I will, I will give you that grade if you play the bassoon." I was oh. like. Okay, and so thus the football player played bassoon. Oh wow, very cool! <laughs> what a unique instrument to, to go with, though. Yeah, I like of all things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hunter, you want to ask another question? Sure. So, um, I read uh, on your uh, bio that you played with the Armonia Brass Trio in two thousand eight, and the trio was awarded the Surf Grant to conduct research and chamber performance practices with professional musicians in Barcelona, Zurich, Geneva, Milan, um, which sounds incredible, by the way. Um, what was it like to win the award? Like, what up to conducting the research? Um, so it actually started, I think, the year before the trio came to be. Another chamber ensemble had um, applied for the grant, and that's kind of how we found out about all this, like you know, extra money for summer research. So that uh, it was a piano, flute, and clarinet trio that first applied for it, and they uh, they actually went to um, Europe as well and did their research. So uh, my roommate at the time, who played trombone, and a trumpet player who's actually um, she works uh, at what's that trumpet um, trumpet company in Boston called? Mm. Um. Monet, not Monet. Oh my gosh, what is it called? It's not Bach, is it? No, they also make trombones. Oh, okay. Um, uh, ooh. Is it King? No, oh my gosh, why am I blanking on it right now? Um, I'll come back to it anyways. But she works <laughs> in Boston um, in, in that industry. But we, we formed our trio, and we applied for the grant, and when we got it, we were ecstatic. We were like, oh, you know, we're not sure if we can pull this off we need the obviously the grant money to 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 travel and stuff like that um but when we got it we were super excited we had set up obviously the proposal beforehand so we were in contact with these professional musicians um the trumpet professor at the time at at uconn was charlie schluter Mm. and he was there for a one-year you know interim as we found you know luke hanslick who's there now and he was the one that kind of hooked us up with all these people in europe um, and it was one of the most memorable and most fulfilling experiences, um, just to, to get to travel with, you know, some of your closest friends and to do it, you know, in a way where you got to make music with these international musicians and like, it, it was, it was crazy. I'll tell you a quick story. We were in Barcelona and there's not too, too much uh, rap out there for brass trio, but one of them is by a guy named Salvador Brotons and we knew he was from uh, Barcelona and we're having this lesson with um, the principal trumpet of the Barcelona Symphony, and uh-huh. it's really, really well. And all of a sudden, we hear a knock at the door, 
And this, this person opens the door, and the trumpet, uh, the the teacher who is you know giving the master class was like, oh, speak of the devil. Like, hey, what are you talking about? <laughs> it was a composer. It was the composer. Oh my god. And we had no idea. He was like, you know, I was walking up and down the halls, and I heard my music, and I was like, oh, this must be, you know, the principals of the orchestra rehearsing. And I come to find out, it's all these Americans, you know. Uh, <laughs> we, we chatted with him for a bit, and then he actually took us out to lunch um, and gave us some of his music to, you know, just to to, to be really nice. And we, we had a great time, and that was just really one of the, the highlights of that trip. That was uh, a real experience. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Right. So, Kevin, did you come from a musical household or a musical environment? Not in the traditional sense. Um, so both my parents immigrated from Vietnam. So I grew up listening to a lot of Vietnamese, you know, old-time old music and Chinese music as well. Um, so, like, in the classical sense, I never really had that experience. Uh, but I knew I liked to sing. And then when I got to middle school, I knew I liked to play my instrument. And then from there, just kind of um, built from there. So both my parents, they don't play instruments, but they can they can keep a tune. They they sing in uh, you know in Hindi. Um, so I did that. My sister uh, played viola for a little bit, and then actually self taught her you know taught herself how to play French horn. So she played it at Trumbull High School for for a couple of years because she wanted to be in the marching band. Um, and still actually plays to this day, which is kind of cool. Um, she's living out in Colorado, has my old instrument, and plays with a community band out there. Right. Cool. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, uh, Kevin, if you were going to give yourself a tip about playing the horn from the future, what would you tell your young self? Oh, goodness. I would tell myself to be very careful. And I say that because I actually have not played horn consistently for probably going on to three years now. Mm. Um, three years ago, I, I injured myself while trying to get ready for a performance, and just something didn't feel right. I put the instrument to my face. You know, I had been off for a couple of weeks, so I was like, all right, time to, to get myself back into it, time to get back into shape. And, you know, one week went by, still wasn't playing great. Two weeks went by, three weeks went by. Finally, the gig happened. I was like, I can't, I can't hack it right now. I, my range is all over. My uh, accuracy was all over. My articulate, my just everything was not working. Um, I made it through the gig, um, and I started looking into you know what could be the issue. Um, I never really pinpointed what exactly happened. I just know that when I form an embouchure, my right side is weaker than my left side, mm -hmm. which is very interesting. So I think there might be some da nerve damage or, or something happened. Um, so what I would tell my, my, my younger self is to be very careful and to ease your way back into trying to be in shape and not try to muscle your way through it because that could lead to maybe where I am now. Maybe I did try to play too hard too fast, right. which ended up in an injury. Um, so that's what that would be the biggest advice I would give my okay. past self. So when did you decide that music was what you wanted to do, like teach or to perform? When did you decide that? Yeah, I think, um, well, the teaching aspect, um, I think, happened probably about my sophomore or junior year of high school. Hmm. Um, I was on the swim team, and I taught you know swim lessons for a program that was there. I really loved seeing um, the progress kids would make. You know, when you got them, when they could barely even, like, float in the water. At the end of a couple of weeks, they were like, 
you know, able to do something. Um, so that was really something I liked um, watching. So as I'm sure with all high school seniors and juniors as they prepare for college, like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do, you know, for major? I never really thought about, you know, like being a music educator. I didn't think that was, for some reason, it didn't even like process, like register that that was a, that was something I could do. And then it was like, all right, well, I want to be a music teacher. Hmm. Um, so I, I applied to UConn. I, I only applied to one other school in um, upstate New York, SUNY Potsdam. Um, but I knew I really wanted to go to UConn, got in, and uh, that's where, you know, I obviously took all the education courses, courses still loved music, um, teaching music. But then I think towards the end of my, my senior, my junior and senior year, that's when I was like, you know what? I really, I think I have a future as a performer as well, so I'm going to work a little bit harder and see if I can get into these grad programs and performance, and got into a whole bunch of different places and then ended up at CU Boulder um, because of their assistantship program there, mm. and um, I was going to be playing with their brass quintet, uh, who had just won bronze medal at the Fish-Off Chamber Competition the year previous. Um, so I knew I was going to be joining a really solid group of musicians, and I really wanted to challenge myself and do something different. Right. Hunter, you want to ask a question? Interesting. Sure. Um, it actually just came to me, just not to like derail, but backtrack a little bit. You mentioned how you know you grew up not with music in the classical sense, but more um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not hereditary, but more um, ethnic music. Yeah. Um. Being from that, your parents were from Vietnam. Uh, is it more of like an Eastern style? Like I'm thinking in my head, like uh, I don't know what the native music of Vietnam is like, but you know the the Eastern and uh, the Chinese, Japanese. You know they employ a lot of the quarter tone system, and you know is, was it like that? And if so, what did you find it very different from what you were hearing growing up here? Uh, well, the, the music my parents were listening to was, was Vietnamese pop, um, so nothing like with quarter tones, but it definitely had a very distinct sound to it, which is hard to explain. Um, they didn't like it wasn't pentatonic in the in the sense you know Japanese you know traditional Japanese and Chinese and Korean music would be, uh, but it just had a very unique quality to it that when you first it first started you're like okay I'm definitely listening to a Vietnamese track as opposed to hey I'm listening to a Chinese track. Um, but not in the traditional sense of, you know, pentatonics and, you know, half tone or sorry, quarter tones and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Just curious. So Kevin, let's talk about your relationship with marching band. Um, I, I took this out of your bio that you marched with 2005 Crossmen and then 2007 Boston Crusaders. And you had worked with many Connecticut marching groups, including myself at Trumbull, uh, Rockville High School, Treasure High School, and East Haven, and then eventually 7th Regiment, and the Bugle Corps there. So let's talk about this. How did marching band change your mind about performance? Uh, I think marching band was a thing that made me, like, made me love performing. And what really kind of propelled me to be an educator, you know, when I was in high school, I was like, you know, I, or going into college, I want to be a high school band director with my own marching band program, successful marching band program, blah, 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 blah. It was all about marching band, and I just loved the activity, loved the the competitive 
of it, the um, the idea of you know being creative on the field and being with all your friends. I really, really love that aspect, and I think that's what really drove me to become a music educator. Mm. Um, as I went through um, college and stuff like that, I still love marching band. Obviously, I did drum corps, uh, but then my my I to shift a little bit, you know, in order to be a great drum corps or to be a great marching band, you need to have a firm, firm grasp on how to play your instrument well at a high level. Um, so, you know, I I still love the activity. I still keep it, you know, I still follow along um, with the drum corps and marching bands that are out there. Um, I actually had plans to go to Indianapolis this, this year to go and see finals, but no, that's canceled. But I think we're still going to go just to kind of hang around Indy a little bit. Um, but I, I love the marching arts. I think it's a really great place for for students to go and, like I said, to really challenge themselves musically, artistically, um, learn a whole bunch of different skills, not you know just how to play notes and rhythms, but time management, dedication, working as a team, working you know how to improve yourself as an individual. Um, so it's just all these like really important things to learn about in life can also be learned in marching band and um, cultivated there. See, you know, it's funny. I was the, uh, I don't want to say opposite, but, uh, you know, when, when I, I didn't do marching band and I was in the concert band at Trumbull High, and I said to myself, I knew in high school that I wanted to, you know, get a degree in music and I wanted to teach and, you know, in a school. And I always said to myself, I, I have nothing against marching band. Like, I, I appreciate everything that is taken away from it. You know, you like everything you just said, the, the time management aspect of it, the dedication, the, the hours of, of endless work that go into it, the musicality behind all that. Um, but I always said to myself that if I got a position as a band director, I wanted it to be a concert position, you know, a, a non-marching band, purely for the fact that, I don't know, there, not that there was a disconnect between me and marching band in general, because like I said, I didn't do it, but there's something to me about being in a space, you know, a non-open field, you know, an enclosed concert hall that is the, I don't know how to describe what I'm saying. It, it really, I think, is more of an intimate setting, which I think helps the music uh, sort of reach people in a different way. Not to say that on the field it can't do that, but I don't know, there was something always different about it for me. Oh, no, I, I completely, completely understand. Um, and a lot of the times, you know, you've got the marching band kids. And if in a program where in Trumbull you did have marching band and contraband, it could be very divisive, like, oh, you're a marching band kid or you're just a contraband kid. So I can see where yeah. that conflict can, can definitely be like, oh, we don't want to talk to them. They're not in the marching band or, you know, inside jokes, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I would definitely agree with being in a smaller, kind of more intimate setting, really – really making you focus on the little things. And for me personally, I feel like I became a way better musician being in a brass quintet than I ever oh, I bet. ensemble setting because you're only dealing with four other people and yourself and you've got to like just, and there's no conductor. So everything that you're doing is based on the five opinions of those people. And how do you convey that, you know, the most to an audience and, um, if it wasn't for that brass quintet uh, assistantship that I was at in Colorado, you know, again, I think I just my my performance would have just been very very my my ability to perform would be very very different. Um, so I definitely understand being in a smaller group and just really getting nitty gritty with the finer details. Mm -hmm. 
So I gotta say, um, I want to mention this very quickly um, about how the world is so small, and the world is so small in the way because you know people that know other people. So, um, when I was at Ithaca, I got to meet Austin Ranistad, who you know, Kevin, and, um, Hunter, you don't know him, but he's another friend of mine at, at Ithaca College. And, um, it was kind of, it was kind of, de- I, I, I know, I, I remember working with you, and I remember him always being like, oh, Kevin, Kevin, I'm like, is that the same, and then we realized that we were talking about the same person. Or actually, no, it was you who messaged me about working with him. And I was like, wow, that's that's so funny because that just felt like the world is sort of small in that way. Have that, has, that, has that ever happened to either of you? Like you bump into someone that you feel like you know, and then you're like, oh, I know this other person. You're like, wait, I know this other person too. So I felt like, and when I, when I remembered that, I sort of felt like I had recognized Kevin in that way. Did you either, one of you want to talk about that a little bit? Kevin, you want to talk about that a little bit maybe? Um, I, I don't remember a specific event, but I mean, like you said, the music world is very, very small, especially in a small state like Connecticut. Yeah. But I just thought it was so coincidental, you know, like Austin, my, my former student, um, I knew he was going to Ithaca and I was like, wait, I know somebody that's at Ithaca right now in the trumpet studio. Let's connect them. Um, so it's just, it's, it was, it was awesome being able to kind of, you know, not keep an eye on him, but like, just know that he can you know, go to if you had any kind of questions, all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, but I know, like, you know, as an, as an educator, um, we'll go to these conferences like regionals or Allstate and all that kind of stuff, and then you just sit down and you start chatting with another music director next to you, like, oh, you want here? Oh, you know this person, you know that person? <laughs> and it just becomes a long list of people that uh, you know in common, um, and it yeah. just kind of creates that bond. And it's, you know, one of my really good friends now, um, is a band director right down the road, and same thing happened. You just, just sat down, we're minding our own business, struck up a conversation, and now we're we're really good friends. Right. Yeah. yeah. Hunter. Um, the first thing that pops to mind is like uh, Chris Coulter, who I work with. Um, I knew him from Bandcamp, and who you know from Bandcamp, and um, you know he teaches in New Canaan. When I camp instructors but then when I went to teach at the camp he was a co-worker and just we happened to be talking and come up the guy who I'd been taking lessons from for for gosh probably a decade prior um actually graduated from the University of Bridgeport with him in the same class um and then my sister went to the University of Bridgeport and then did the orchestra there and the guy who is playing the or who not playing the guy who was conducting the orchestra come to find out his name is mark vickers and he was in the class either above or below i can't remember both of those other two people so they all knew each other from being at the university of bridgeport because back in its heyday it had a very very strong and well-known music program um but it th- i thought it was so funny because like he lives up in i don't know some like podunk nowhere up in the part of connecticut that nobody talks about sure and then uh, obviously Coulter's in, actually I don't know where he lives, but like I said, teaches in New Canaan, and then the other one's in Milford, and so it's like three totally different parts of the state that through a common area, like you said, the, the community is pretty small, or at least connected, that it is funny how small the world itself is. Right. So Kevin, let's talk about your um, teaching, because 
you're coming up on your 10th year as yeah. instrumental music director. How does it feel to be down 10 years of teaching? Uh, to be honest, it's really hard to believe it's, it's been 10 years. Um, I graduated from Colorado and came right back to Connecticut. I knew I wanted to uh, get back into the education world. Um, got this job that I'm at now, and the rest is history. It, it really has flown by, um, and it, it's it'll be an interesting start to year 10, um, just because we're not quite sure what's going to be happening with schools this coming September, August. Sure. Um, it could be all online. It could be a hybrid model. And with band and choir, who knows what that's going to look like. Is it uh-huh. uh, going to be face shields? Is it going to be plexiglass? Are you going to be in the gym now? Um, it's just a lot of questions that – you know, starting year 10, you know, you, like I said, you get into a groove, you're like, yeah, I got it. We do this, we do that. We've got, you know, good kind of flow going on. And now with COVID happening, it's just kind of put everything into a different perspective. True. So I think we're just waiting to hear from, you know, the states as to what to do as we move forward and kind of having a plan for that. So, that is, that's crazy. so I like to have educators on the show because I like them to help me debunk myths about being teachers. Um, what is okay. one myth that you feel like people get wrong about being a teacher? The one thing that makes me pretty angry is that if you can't perform, you teach. Mm. And that like struck a chord with me. And, you know, back when I was a younger, I was like, I was thinking, oh, that's like kind of, that, that just didn't sit well with me. And, and, you know, now that I have been in for 10 years, that definitely does not sit well with me. Mm. Um, because without these teachers, there are no performers. Mm. So you need to have someone who's obviously knows what they're talking about, but also inspiring and um, willing to work with you and willing to, you know, push you to your limits and not just be complacent with, you know, Obviously, there's a lot of self-motivation that comes from it, but it definitely helps to have uh, a teacher who is that kind of, you know, that other voice that pushes you even further to to do better than you know you can be. Um, so that is one myth that I want to debunk right away. Uh, <laughs> heard this thing from the truth, um, and I just feel like that's important for for everyone to know that you know, just because you teach doesn't mean that you can't be a great performer. Right. Right. So I, I love when you talk about chamber music because I, I also love performing chamber music and it's something that I think people should be doing more of. And this year I was able to do a chamber recital including Brandenburg II and uh, L'Histoire, Do Sold That, which was probably the coolest thing I've ever done. Um, got to collaborate with actors and dancers and it was so cool to put that together. Um if you're going to be talking to someone who's beginning chamber music for the first time, what would you want to tell them? To not be afraid to make mistakes. Um, obviously, it's a smaller group, so it's not easy to hide behind other people. Um, and if you're always afraid, uh, that's what I tell my own private students, if you're always afraid of making mistakes, you're never going to learn how to get better. Because mm. all you're going to be doing is worrying about making mistakes that you're actually going to be making more mistakes because you're not letting yourself just kind of play the way you should play. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a, a horn student who would just get so nervous every time we had a, a private lesson. And again, like I said, she would just make all these mistakes. And I, I realized it was because she was nervous. And the second I, I told her that concept, I was like, just play. Don't, don't worry about making a mistake. And it just it shifted for her. 
And she was able to do these things and she was able to improve because she wasn't trying to be perfect. She was just allowing herself to perform and to make these mistakes and then learn from them. Um, but in, in a chamber music setting, yeah, don't be afraid to, to make mistakes. Don't be afraid to um, ask questions. Don't be afraid to let your musical, um, your musical, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Intuition. Um, don't allow your musical intuition to be stifled because you're afraid of, uh, you know, upsetting somebody else. And that's the beauty of a small ensemble is that, you know, you say something, you say something, and you find somewhere in the middle where you can uh, compromise on and make even make it even better, maybe. Right. I like how you said that because something that I learned pretty quickly about being a trumpet player in an orchestra is transposition. And I didn't really understand that concept right away. So playing really loud and playing out of key was sort of perfect for me to figure out, oh, I have to transpose here. So that was sort of a nice way to sort of make that. And, and I think I, I always heard you say that, and I think that that makes a lot of musical sense. Like if you make a mistake, you learn so much because at that point you're like, I'm never going to do that again, you know. Or you'll sort of feel like, you know what, I don't think I liked that. Maybe I'll try something different, and that will lead you down the road to sort of finding the right answer, I think, um, in that sense. I, I like that. Um, Hunter, do you want to ask another question? Um, sure. Uh, and obviously this is, I mean, it's all opinion, but would you say that being in a chamber orchestra versus, let's say, a larger band or orchestra, which do you think is more beneficial, um, in, uh, for the development of the musician? Obviously I could see how each group has its own benefits, but as a musician as a whole, which do you feel is more beneficial? Um, like I, I think the chamber orchestra um, would would be a little bit. Well, like you said, there are aspects um, for both ensembles to to obviously improve, but I think the chamber orchestra would be better just because you can hear people a bit better. Um, so like brass players sit in the back, and uh, in a chamber setting, you can hear the second violins or the cellos that you might not be able to hear in a larger um, orchestral setting or even further back. Um, so, and you might be playing with one other person as if four or five other people in your section. So again, just being really um, detailed in intonation, articulation matching, um, and all that kind of stuff, it, I think it's a lot, there's a lot to learn from both, but I would prefer the chamber orchestra or the chamber ensemble setting. Mm -hmm. So, Kevin, we're going to take a quick little break. Um, sure. Don't go anywhere because we'll be right back. But in the meanwhile, we're going to hear a little bit from our sponsor, Anchor, and uh, we'll be right back after this message. Go. All right. So the first of the songs that you chose, Kevin, are um, – well, that doesn't make sense, but the first of the songs that you chose is – a piece by Richard Strauss, and it is Till Eulenspiegel. Uh, I don't speak German. Um, what made you choose this particular piece? Was it Strauss, or was it the piece itself? Uh, I think it was both. Um, mm -hmm. So Till Eulenspiegel, the the whole story is about it's a, you know this jester who's going around pulling pranks on people. Um, so that's like the really short kind of synopsis of it, but. Um, being a horn player, like there, there's a major orchestral excerpt in there. It's actually the very first thing you hear um, in the the beginning of the piece is this horn solo, and it's just 
it, it was something that I had prepared in college and, you know, in, in UConn. Um, and just as an excerpt, never thinking I'd actually perform it. Um, but then at Colorado in my second year, Spiegel was on the docket and my horn professor wow. was like, okay, Kevin, do you want to play principal on Spiegel or do you want to play principal on Mahler? And I was like, uh, Spiegel, please. <laughs> um, but you know, with that being said, I was super excited about it, but then it was like, oh my gosh, I'm super nervous about it because it is a huge exposed solo in the very beginning. And if you don't play it right, you know, you're in trouble. Um, but that was just one of the most memorable, um, performances that I can, you know, remember from my graduate program was, was playing principal on, on that, on that, um, piece of music. Very cool. Let's listen to a little bit of it and then, uh, talk some more about it. Obviously, you know, I'm I'm a big fan of the Romantic era. You know, it, it's like, I mean, the orchestration that they're able to do is, is just incredible. And that piece really, I think, exemplifies it. Um, what do you, I mean, obviously, the whole experience that you've had with it added to your like for it. But is there anything particular about the piece? You mentioned the trumpet, uh, not the trumpet, the horn solo at the beginning. Um, but is there anything else that really stands out to you? whether from a listening standpoint or a performance standpoint? I think just like you mentioned, the romantic era is all about drama. And I just think that this piece is all about just the playfulness of the character and the back and forth between the different sections of the, or sections of the orchestra. Um, and, you know, Strauss you know, wrote a lot of really great horn music. He wrote two great horn concertos that are played to this day. And any, any, he just knew the horn up and down. Mm -hmm. Um, and she just knew how to write for it, and it made it makes it really fun for the musicians to play music that is well written for the instrument. Um, so that's all, a big key. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But all of his music is just super 
um, relatable. There's always a story behind it, and I think that's what really um, stuck with me. Mm-hmm. You know, program music. I mean, I, I don't. I'm not sure whether or not it's specifically a program piece, but you know, Romantic Era gave way to that concept of program music, where the author did not the author, the composer had uh, a uh, specific vision in mind. Clearly had. He wanted told, and even where even in pieces that were not program music, I think some of the composers specifically in that era uh, were able to do that even without a vision. You know what I mean? Their music clearly tells a story, which might be different for each person, but it still has a very distinct uh, flow, a very particular journey that that goes on. Um, as Strauss being one of the biggest. Uh, you know, along with, you know, even Wagner, who was mostly writing opera. Um, so there was clearly a story there. But, you know, I think it just does such a great job of that. And, you know, like we said earlier, the orchestration is just great. I mean, the coloration is beautiful. Um, second, maybe only to the impressionistic people in terms of uh, co- coloration was sort of what they were all about. Um, anything else to add? For me, um, for thinking about strauss i i feel like it's it's an animal it's just he's just a monster <laughs> i think about man if you think about trumpet excerpts from different centuries i mean his is the hardest the hardest and i'm not sure about how you feel about that the same way kevin but the his writing for trumpet is really hard and he just he just likes writing oh i'm gonna write this in f uh no i'm gonna write that in e no, I'm going to write that in A. So you never really get one real set key for trumpet, but I wanted to get right. your opinion on that. What do you what do you feel about that? Well, I mean, it, it was par for the course back in the day where they didn't have the modern instruments. Um, so, you know, the horn, I forget exactly when the modern valves came into play, but a lot of it was done with hand stopping and um, obviously mm. the embouchure. Um, but... You know, I didn't even find this out until a little bit later, but, you know, Strauss wrote in different keys to invoke a different feeling. So if you want to sound kind of like more untamed, a little bit more natural, then he wrote it in this key for horn. If you want to be more regal, he wrote it in this key for horn because then it sat in a different uh, range and also sat in a different, it gave it a different timbre. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking that's probably the same thing he did for trumpet because you have all these varieties of trumpets that give you different colors, give you a different uh, flexibility and range. And, uh, you know, I think that's just what they did back then. And, you know, with the development of technology and um, all that kind of stuff, then we, we have the modern day instruments that we have now. But trumpets still have many, many different trumpets to pick from, mm-hmm. while the horn is just, uh, you know, pretty much um, F and B flat. And if you're you're fancier, you get the triple horn. Um, <laughs> you can keep going, Hunter. What do you, uh, you want to keep going to the next song? Sure. Okay. Uh, the the second song that you picked um, is a piece by Bolcom, and I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, it's called Orphe's Serenade. Now, is I, I admit I don't know much about either the composer or the piece. Is it based off the myth of uh, Orpheus and Eurydice? Uh, I actually have no idea. No idea. What's I'm that. just curious with a title like that. You never know. Um, but. Uh, what made you choose this particular piece? It's obviously a more modern composition. 
um, in its own way, very different from the previous piece. So what made you choose it? I think, it, again, it was more of a personal journey. Um, it also happened in my the beginning of my second year of grad school. Um, I had gone through a lot of really tough relationship stuff at the time. And when I got this music on my stand, I was like, oh, my, I, this is something I can handle right now. Because it's only, it, like we were talking about chamber music, it, it's just a chamber orchestra, even like maybe even one per part. Um, and so one horn part. And I looked at it, I was like, what is this right now? I <laughs> like this in my life. So I actually went and knocked on um, Alan McMurray, who is the, the, the wind ensemble conductor at Colorado. And I was like, hey, I'm going through a lot of really tough stuff right now. I don't know if I could commit to it. And he said, Kevin, this is the perfect time for you to commit yourself to this and to get your mind off of whatever is going on in your life and to really challenge yourself. And I remember thinking like, oh, my gosh, it's such a terrible idea, but it made sense. And I was so happy that he was like, nope, you're not giving up on this. You are going to do this no matter what. Um, and when it came down to it and I had to actually perform it and rehearse it, it was so fulfilling. It was like, okay, yes, this terrible stuff is going on in my life right now, but hey, this is stuff I didn't think I could play and I'm doing it and it sounds awesome. It's really cool and I really like it. Um, and it was, like I said, it's so different than anything else I've ever played in my life. Um, and to really challenge myself on a whole bunch of different levels, um, you know, personally and musically, um, I think that's why it really stuck out to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's big, you know, when people have a, um, whatever, whatever sort of crisis is, is in their life, you know, oftentimes they need a focal point and sometimes it, it's work, you know, and they always say that, you know, they bury themselves in their work to avoid whatever. But sometimes it's, it's as therapeutic as it is um, for others in avoidance. And especially with something like music, you know, you're creating something and expressing the emotions that maybe you were unable to uh, express otherwise through the music. And like this, you know, it's very, I don't want to say wrong because that's not quite what I meant, but it is in its own way very uh, primal, let's say. Uh, so let's take a listen to some of it, and uh, everyone listening can formulate their own opinion about the song, but then we'll talk a little bit more about it after.
like a more modern era piece. And um, for for those who don't know, you know, the modern era basically started a decade or maybe decade and a half, late in 1920, uh, all the way to current day. So it's a very large window. But if I'm not mistaken, the composer of this, I think he's still alive, isn't he? I think. Yep. I believe so. Um, and so it, it's very recent in terms of music, uh, because we call recent things as early as 1900. But um, having said that, you know, do you think that your, um, how do I want to put this? I don't want to say your experience, but do you think that the mood of the piece fit with what, I, see, I'm not explaining it well. There was, there's so much modern theory, modern compositional styles in the piece mm. that do you think that's something that appealed to you playing it in a prepared for it? Or do you think it was just like, well, I have to do this, so I'm doing it, and I wound up liking it? I, I think it was the second that you just mentioned. It really just it uses a lot of – well, it doesn't it, – it doesn't flow as well as like, you know, a romantic or a classical piece of music. So I really had to sit down and look at this music and be like, Hey, what, what do I need to do to make this happen? Mm -hmm. uh, and being able to jump, like you heard in the first couple seconds of the piece that it jumps high, it jumps low, you're doing extended techniques, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then the tempo is all, well, it's not all over the place, but it's not, the meter is not consistent. So it's always changing. No. So you have to always be on your toes um, to stay together with the rest of the ensemble or, you know, it's organized chaos. It sounds wrong, but it's right. Yeah. And so it was very difficult to make sure that you're playing a 30-second note, you know, at the exact right time that the, the other flute player might be playing that same exact 30-second note. So um, it really was just I had to ultra-focus. And once I got to a point where, like, hey, this is cool – I know what's going on now, know what to expect, then I could have a little bit more fun with it, ended up liking it a lot. Very cool. Anything to add, Sean? Yeah, I gotta say, um, not a lot of people like this stuff, but people who do are really... <laughs> <laughs> no, I guess like, people who do like this stuff are in incredibly smart and incredibly intuitive with what they do. Um, I gotta say, um, I wasn't a fan of it at first, but I felt like when I started playing this sort of music, it made me better. I sort of feel like, I, along with you, Kevin, maybe you felt like once you started playing something like this, it challenged you a little bit. Like, you're going to be like, this doesn't sound like I played a, a Stravinsky octet for a elective recital that I did. And there's a section in it that's, like, really gross and, like, really, like, really slow and, like, really painful. But once you get through that section, it just feels so gratifying. And it's... I mean, like, when I started playing, um, I'm not sure if you you either know Karel Husa. Um, he's a staple at Ithaca College. And I started working on one of his wind ensemble concertos for trumpet. And as soon as I started playing it, my trumpet teacher's like, you're going to play this? And I was like, yeah. And I was like, yeah, why not? He's like, okay, I'll see how long you're going to stick with it. And I stuck with it for about six weeks. And I played it for the concerto competition. I didn't. I didn't get through the first round, but I felt like I learned so much from that experience that I was able to, you know, be a better trumpet player. And I know it's not for everybody. I get that. Like people are like, you know, but but there are sections that are just like, 
it, it is just so incredibly intuitive and genius and um, I'm not saying that this music should be shared more. I mean, it definitely should be, but people just might get the wrong impression of it because they feel like it's it's too intelligent. You know, sometimes people feel like, um, you know, like I, I was listening to a piece that someone wrote um, and it's called um, uh, The Invention of a Toaster, you know? <laughs> And it didn't really make much sense, but once I started listening to it, it just it just clicked with me. And I've I've always loved twentieth century music. I know you don't like it, Hunter, and I know Kevin, I'm not sure where you stand just yet right now on this conversation, but I think it's interesting to think about sometimes a little like where where do we lie with this sort of um tangent? And I know that's not a question, and I should probably ask Kevin a question now. Um, <laughs> I was talking for like 10 minutes. Um, so Kevin, um, my question is to you, uh, do you enjoy this music? I, I feel like I do, but do you? Uh, I, yeah, I, uh, to kind of go off of what you were saying before, I, I truly believe that all music has merit, whether, you know, you personally enjoy it or not, that person, that composer wrote it for a reason. Um, and whether or not it sounds good to you again it's just up to your opinion um there are pieces that i do listen to where i'm kind of like eh, you know it's not my cup of tea i wouldn't listen to it like you know turn on my car radio and like i'm gonna turn on you know um you know babbitt milton babbitt I'm just gonna jam to milton babbitt for a little bit or yeah. stockhausen um brought up to square yeah no <laughs> um, but uh, it, it challenged for for those composers. It challenged. It pushed the envelope for what was available for them at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, you go back, and Beethoven's music wasn't well received when at the beginning. And it's only now that, like, oh my gosh, she's you know, master. You know, ma- these are masterpieces. of genius. Um, well, not just now. You know, I'm you know, I'm talking about. Uh, but I, I do like the music. I think I've got to be in the the right mood. But it's always interesting to, um, I teach a music history class at my school, and when we get to this era, you turn it on, and you know, these kids are like, uh, huh, what? <laughs> <laughs> that glazed look on their face. Yeah, 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 but it definitely makes you kind of like tilt your head and mm. really listen to what's going on and find out like, oh, okay, like this makes sense and this doesn't make sense, but it's still cool mm. regardless of what's happening. Right. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Well, in the, I guess, in that vein, you have the opposite side of like music that is very put together. And that leads us to your next piece, which uh, for those who are unfamiliar with um, to Kelly, uh, he wrote a piece called American Elegy. And amidst the band world, really the school band ensemble world, it is pretty well known, I would say. Um, it's sort of, I don't want to say standard repertoire, but um, it, it is one of the more popular, uh, well-received pieces. And it, it is almost a 180 from the one we just heard in that it is very harmonic. It is very calm. Um, and uh, what was your first experience with this piece? So um, that piece was something I played in my senior year of high school um, and it just struck a chord with me in a, on a very different level than any other piece had ever struck with me before. Yeah, music pun. Yeah, I know, really though. <laughs> um, so, 
uh, what was I trying to say? So Columbine, so the piece was written for Columbine High School, which was the first, I guess, like, like well-documented um, school massacre. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at the time, it was, I think it was 1999 when that happened. Yeah, I think so. I was in eighth grade, and it just didn't, like, it, it wasn't, what's the one I'm looking for? I did not personally invest myself into that. I like I knew it happened and I felt bad for what had happened, but it just didn't, you know, it didn't sit with me as much as, you know, things like t- things that happen now today. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just like not brush it aside, but it wasn't at the forefront of my my kind of my my thought process. But then, you know, graduating in 2004, so five years after that happened, and you know, reading about um, the, the 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 situation and what went into composing it and the alma mater, the Columbine alma mater being embedded into that piece of music and the bass drum being representative of, you know, a gunshot or um, this, this feeling of hope and um, guilt and sadness. All of it was just like, it just, it gave me all the feels in a really great way, but also a really solemn way as well. Uh And I think when I performed that piece, um, most of these pieces is oh, I wrote them down because it I, I achieved what um, in the musical world is called flow, and this is a term that I learned in graduate school. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people equate this to a runner's high or an athletic high, where you lose all track of time. You you're working hard, you're doing your thing, and you just have no idea what's going on. But at the end of it, you're like, oh, it happened, and it was awesome. And right. first time I experienced flow as a musician in high school. And I played the piece or a couple solos that I thought were really, you know, really awesome. And at the end of it, I was like, where, what happened? Like, I, I, I blacked out, essentially. And then found out that, you know, came to, came to my senses, like, wow, that was really powerful on so many different levels. And I remember um, playing one of the solos and having to really hold back my emotions because I felt the tears, like, welling up in my ass. Like, I know, no, I can't do this. i got to push through. Um, and I think that's why this piece of music really held me for so many years. It's funny that you, that you mentioned that. And, of course, you know, it's horrible that sometimes tragedy is equated with all these emotions. But uh, the phenomenon that you're describing, you know, I, I remember feeling it in a very similar uh, situation back in, oh, gosh, I think it was 2013, um, was that, that was the Sandy Hook, wasn't it? Shooting? I think so. I think it was 2013. And we were having our winter concert, in, and I think I was a junior. No, I must have been a senior. And I, you know, having that experience, but we were playing um, the song, one of many songs named uh, O Magnum Mysterium. And I can't remember who the composer was because a couple people have written songs with that title. I think it's uh, and Morton. It was this... I think it's Morton. Lord. I think it's Morton Lawrence. I think. Uh, yeah, I think yeah. you're right. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, it's this very choral, uh, hymn-like piece, and the build in the song. I mean, it's it's a very moving piece. And I remember, uh, Sean, you might remember this. Uh, Mr. Horton turned around, he was our, our band director, and he turned around to the audience and he said, you know, uh, this is the next piece we're playing and we would like to dedicate it to the memory of the Sandy Hook victims. And we didn't know he was going to do that. And he turned back around and being clarinet, I was right in the front and he was like, he was whispering, now you have to play it good. <laughs> and um, 
yeah, it was just this very powerful experience that all of a sudden you could tell everyone was so focused on making sure that we played this to the best of our ability. And it was just like something clicked and everyone was so committed to making the piece as as good as it could be. And like you said, you fall into it and, and it's just the cliche that you and are, are one and the same and you know, you're sort of pouring yourself out into it and then at the end you're I don't want to say drained because that's not quite what I'm trying to say, but you know, you feel like you've worked for it. But at the same time you don't feel like it because you didn't realize it while you were doing it. It just happened. You just sort of were part of it. You know what I mean? So after all that, let's actually hear part of the piece and uh, see if the uh, listeners can get the same sense that we do about the piece. Again, the coloration is beautiful. It, it's, it's got this um, very moving quality to it. Just all the pieces that went into position. Um, anything that you feel stands out to you about the actual piece uh, in terms of the, the musicality of it um, rather than the background like we talked about before? Yeah, actually, um, probably before the clip ended, maybe like five, six, seven, ten seconds before, there is that chord that it, it, it just, that one chord for me just sucked so much because in that chord you feel everything. You feel the anguish, you feel the despair, you feel the sadness, you feel just everything is encapsulated in that one moment and then mm -hmm. it kind of resolves but doesn't. So it leaves you on like this emotional cliffhanger, like, oh my gosh, like, 
you feel unsettled inside. And that I think was the intent of Tekeli when he wrote it was to kind of, you know, get you to this moment of just utter despair and then it kind of floating away and like you're kind of still feeling not sure how how to feel about it really. Um, and mm-hmm. you know, that was one of the big moments for me. But also like this piece of music calls for um, antiphonal trumpet and which is an off stage solo and so it kind of again uh, into the imagery of you know like this is the memory of those that passed um, and uh, it, it's just there's just so much going on in it that just really brings a lot of like you can't like I can't separate the emotional aspect of it and the musicality aspect of it even like listening to it um, the beginning part of it I, again I'm feeling like the tears well up in my eyes because it's just it is very yeah. it's tied to such an emotional time for me. Oh yeah, and and you know that's one of the. I mean, obviously, we all probably feel it because we're in this field. But even those who aren't, um, you know, that's the power of music. You know, to to make you have those emotions or to to produce those emotions. Not even make you have them, but to produce those emotions in a way that you know language is incapable of doing. Um, because like you're talking about it, you're describing it with your words, and yet sometimes we're all at a loss for words because you're like, I, I can't quite describe that. And numerous composers have talked about how it describes indescribable. You know, there's just we lack something that it can produce that we can't, and obviously that's part of the the magic, so to speak, of it. Um, anything to add about it? I gotta say that I've actually played that solo. Um the antiphonal solo and it's hard (laughs) Uh a lot of that solo really rests on the rest of the piece and if you mess it up it is basically over for you um Uh i remember feeling so nervous because i've always cracking that 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 open fifth it's so hard to do that (laughs) um kevin you probably know better than i do but um Uh it is just so easy to do that um I've played this piece many times, and I've always felt like um, when I listen to it over and over again, I just, I, 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 again, I feel like, I feel like what Kevin said, like the sadness is kind of like what brings it up. But um, he, he's very clever in his writing. I think something that I've gotten to know, you may know, because you work in Guilford, um, due to um, the high school teacher. Do you know Mark Gom? Yeah, he is an incredible conductor. I got to work with him at the New Haven uh, Wind Ensemble, like mm-hmm. New Haven um, Youth, Youth or well, New Youth Wind Ensemble. I think it's not not really sure the the title now, but um, he is such a great mentor to work with. And the first time he mentioned this piece, he was talking about how he just was able to you know go into different directions of like. Um, to Kelly uses the the alma mater theme of the high school in the song, mm-hmm. which is just so cool. Um, so my question to you, Kevin, is: Are there any compositional things that you think he does well in this song? That sort of like you know, you mentioned that one chord where he just sort of keeps it and then it doesn't really resolve. Is there something that you kind of look forward to or listen for in this piece? Because for me, well, I listen for the. Um, the big fanfare, fanfare, right the moment right before it sort of turns into this like very twinkly like saxophone sort of like that. That's it's so cool. I like listening to that so much. But um, and I wanted to mention to you that when I did that solo, we did it in Patel Chapel, and I was wow. super far away, 
And it was so hard to sort of like keep it coordinated, but it was so cool because um, the echo acts, well, the trumpet player acts like as, as, a, as an angel, I think. Mm. That's what he told me. And he said the angel sort of speaks what the people have sort of been saying, like, it's going to be okay. There, there is always a period of crisis, then panic, then forgiveness. The forgiveness is what should come first before any of those, you know? So thinking about, like, moving that forward is sort of um, revolutionary, I think, in that way. Um, so, Kevin, back to my question. Um, do you have a sort of certain moment that you love in this piece? I mean, you mentioned big fanfare, you know, like oh, I, the whole piece in, 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 in general is um, this emotional roller coaster. Because if you don't, even if you don't know the background to this piece of music, there are just so many different sections. You know, you know in the beginning, it's very much, it, it, it's major in, to, in tonality. And then you get these moments of, you know, um, of dissonance and, I think just for me, when I listen to the piece of music, because I do know the background, you're just listening for that those signs of hope, the 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 signs for despair, the signs for triumphantness, the 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 idea of moving forward and but still remembering um, what happened so that you don't forget. Um, I think just that the entire piece as a whole is very, um, it just brings you in all these different kind of emotions and it keeps you not in one emotion for too long because then it switches immediately, not immediately, but it switches. So it keeps you on your toes in that aspect of it. But I think as a whole, it's just really important to, to know that background and to, to hear that story along with the music. Sure. Very cool. Um, now your fourth piece, uh, again, I, I can't say I was familiar with it before, but Evald, you know, he's a Russian, I believe, right? And uh, he wrote this quintet. This is quintet number one. Um, for those who don't know, you know, quintet's obviously a, a group of four. Uh, not four. Quint is five. Quartet is four. Um, uh, instruments. And in this case, it's a brass quintet, I think. Um, is that true? Yes. Yes. So, um, what made you choose this? I know we've talked a lot about chamber music, and uh, this is this obviously being a chamber piece. I imagine that's one of the reasons it spoke to you. I have to say, I was pleasantly surprised by the piece. I didn't know it, but I really do enjoy it. Mm. So, for you, what was the what was the thought process? So, the this quintet is like the standard repertoire for brass quintet. If you play in a brass quintet, you have to play this piece of music. It's like a rite of passage. If you don't play this, then you've done something wrong. Um, and it's really accessible to professionals and to high schools, and it's just really, um, it, it just sits well, and it, it really challenges everybody, um, regardless of what instrument you play. Um, but I played this with my brass quintet at Colorado my first year. Um, at Theo Boulder, and we had to record this for uh, various competitions. And the recording process is such a bear. <laughs> like, you've never recorded yourself, let alone with a brass quintet. It is one of the hardest things to do because you're trying to be you're trying to be perfect. Because if you want to be considered to you know this international competition, you have to make sure your your T's are crossed, your I's are dotted. Um, so we got real nitty gritty, like 
like looking at every single musical phrase, making sure releases were, you know, at, at the right time, making sure articulation matched, making sure intonation, you know, all throughout uh, style, you know. Um, so this piece of music was the, like one of the first that we really had to dissect and put under a microscope um, to to make it the best performance that we can that we can perform. Um, and to add a recording on top of that, video and audio was even harder. Oh, that's no pressure at all. Oh, no pressure at all. So, like, it's just, it was a lot uh, to think about. Um, but it was also one of the, the moments where I got to sit back, like, okay, we know this piece so well. It's, it's like, it, it plays itself. And you don't have to think. You just do it because you're, you've done it so many times in that certain fashion that you just know what to do. And your uh -huh. body. Ah, uh, the benefits of practicing. If only we got the students <laughs> to understand. Um, so let's hear a little bit of uh, this. Uh, are five instruments in this quintet? Kevin, I don't know if you want to. It's uh, two. <laughs> I think he had started with the piece earlier. Traditionally, it is two trumpet players, horn, trombone, and tuba. Uh, there are other brass quintets that substitute the tuba out for a bass trombone, uh, but it's just, it just depends on your instrumentation and what you have available, but it is um, written for tuba. Okay, very cool. And, uh, well, I just, I love that, that part in there where it's like the, the stepwise motion going up or the half stepwise. Um, very cool. It's very... Uh, not lilting, but like it, it draws you in. Um, it's a very compelling piece. And like you said, you know, it, it, it is that kind of piece where the articulation particularly has to be on point because it's so exposed. 
in the sense of like, you know, in a quintet or in a quartet or a trio, the chamber, the smaller chamber music, uh, it really is every person's part plays a particular role. And without it, there's something missing, even if it's, you know, a double trumpet part, each one has their own, you know, even if, maybe not necessarily for this one, but even if they're playing the same part, it's still, uh, you need that solidarity between them. You know what I mean? And uh, it's a very cool piece. I I don't think I knew it just because if it is standard brass repertoire, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a clarinet player. I don't really know that much of the other instruments repertoire, although I probably should. Um, but I'm, I'm happy you chose it because it, it's a good piece and I'll definitely keep that in the back of my mind. Um, now the, anything else to add, John, as a brass player? No, I've played this too many times to talk (laughs) about it, so. No, I'm just, I'm just gonna talk about what Kevin just said for a hot second. Um, Kevin, you said that, um, this piece is memorable, I'll give you that. Um, I gotta say, uh, last year, before all this crazy shit happened, um, when we were able to go to, you know, summer festivals and all that. I ended up playing this piece with my brass quintet at school um, in, in, in my master's program. And then I went to a festival in Tennessee uh, called Swanee Music Summer Music Festival. And I went there and I con- well, ar- ironically, I was paired up with a bunch of high school students and I had to play that same exact piece. And it was really interesting because none of them had played it before. None of them had been in a chamber ensemble like I had. I had been in many at that point in my time. And at that point in time, they're like, they had never read this before. So basically, um, the coach was basically out for the day. And he's like, you have the most experience, so you could probably lead them. And so I I did. And basically, I broke down the whole piece, the entire piece, because I I had known it from heart. Like, I was like... This is when we're going to play in one. This is when we're going to play in three. This is when we're going to play in four. This is when we're going to slow down and retard here. This is when we're going to speed up, you know? And I, I knew the piece really well, and they followed it pretty well, and they were like, you know, this is really cool of how, like, easily it sort of melded together, together, you know? Like, it, it worked really easily, and a lot of them were like, how do you know this? I'm like, man, if you know how many times I played this piece, it's just, it will just blow off. It would just blow and blow up, I mean, but... Um, I was going to say, like, after, after so long of playing this piece, um, do you ever get tired of playing this piece? I do personally, but, um, what do you, what do you think? I don't think I've played it maybe nearly as many times as you have. Um, but I think the cool thing is that, you know, you play with one group and then the second you, you play with another group, it changes everything. Sure. You know, you know, like I played it with my faculty quintet when I was at Sacred Heart and I wanted to do all these things that I had done with other brass quintet, and I wanted to, you know, put all, but then you've got four new different people with all different opinions, and, you know, and you don't play nearly as much as, you know, what I did with my other group. Um, so it's essentially like learning a new piece of music for me um, in, in that sense, um, because you've got completely different people trying to put this piece of music together. Of course, like, there are standard ideas of retardandos or accelerandos at certain points, uh, but maybe not as quick as a recording does, or maybe not as slow as another recording does kind of thing. Mm, yeah. So it's just fun to kind of relearn how to to play something you already know, but in a different way. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that, 
uh, you know, part of that experience of playing with different groups of people is what I like about it. You know, I, if there's a piece that I know well that I play with um, two different groups, and I like to see the way each group reacts to it, um, whether it's total panic or whether it's like in fact, whenever there there's a piece that I play, I, maybe you know, it's it's called Instant Concert. I don't know if you know. It's it's how many is it? it it's like a two page song. It's about two and a half minutes, and it has thirty songs in it, like famous pieces. Yeah. And you know, it's one of those. And whenever I play it, whether it's because I play in a community band, whether it's the first time we play it with them and there are new members, or whether it's we played it in band camp and you see how the younger kids react to it. Um, you know, this concept of like all these songs, they, they grab each of them as they come along. They're like, oh, I know that one and that one and that one. Oh, wait, but it's already done. And I like to see how p different people react differently to something that you know very well. And part of that is being able to share your experience with those people and your experience with the song. Um, and then how you view it compared to how they come to view it after they've been doing it for a while. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, the whole teaching process that I, I like about playing songs that I already know. Right. Uh, uh, so, you know, songs already know. Um, most people, or not most, I would say, uh, many people, um, probably know the fifth song, sort of our wild card choice here. Um, and the song is Blackbird, which was originally sung by the Beatles, but the version we have here is by the King Singers, which you had mentioned you uh, you had first been introduced to the song via them. Um, so you want to just tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, this this is uh, this song I heard from the King Singers was when when I was at UConn. They were doing. They, I think they do it all the time. They do these national tours, and they came through UConn, and you know we got tickets to go see them, and. I had never heard a professional acapella group before. Um, so I've heard, you know, like high school college groups, but these guys were like at a completely different level. Um, and I don't even know if an acapella group would be like an insult or uh, <laughs> no, but they're like just the, the variety and the, the, the range that they, they had um, was just, it, it was incredible. Um, and it's not so much that I picked this song in particular, but I, I you know, I picked a song. I, I like music that is not heavily processed. So anything mm. acoustic or acapella is something I really enjoy, especially in the pop realm, because there is just so much manipulation that's done to, um, to music nowadays that you lose track of what that performer can actually do. Um, and so I think that's why I really enjoyed this performance, because it is just voice. There's no instruments. There's no background. Uh -huh click track is just these however many guys on stage using what naturally comes to them um and it just it, it just it was such a cool experience and um after that concert was over uh, you know my roommates and i we all went back to the room and this was before the age of youtube mm -hmm. we had to like look well youtube was around but not as prevalent as it is now right. we had to go to our music library to see if there was a cd in there of whatever it was and we went and checked out the cd and it was just a, it was something that I remember being um, really memorable for me. That's very cool. I mean, there is something particularly impressive about acapella, barbershop quartet, like you mentioned, acoustic, 
performers and you know i always remember um uh, one of the most impressive songs that i know i've heard acapella is um light a rose from the music man mm. and not music, wait, music man uh yeah music man um and it's you know it's a barbershop quartet song you know and then you hear it just this control of music when done well is just very impressive um how many members are in the in the king singers is it five? No. Is it five? All right. So a little bit more than, than barbershop, but um, although some some do use five. So let's listen to it and hear what people think, or rather, what do they get from it? Blackbird singing in the dead all night. Take these broken wings and learn to fly all your life. You were only waiting for this moment to arise. Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Take these sunken eyes and learn to see. hearing the school band you were originally going to do choir um in middle school so i imagine hearing something like that is probably you know it, it brings up that memory of like oh, you know you know singing is 
you know, for most people who are instrumentalists, you know, they don't often double as vocalists, although it's something they, they have to train for a little bit um, because it is your first instrument is your voice. Um, and do you feel any connection with that when you hear like instrumental, uh, not instrumental, um, acoustic or pop um, acapella groups? Uh, I don't think so. No, no, I was just curious. No, no, it doesn't like make me yearn, like you know, regret being an instrumentalist or anything like that. But I mean, I definitely appreciate, um, you know, how the hard work that vocalists put in to, you know, the same way that instrumentalists put in work to, to perfecting their craft. Um, mm -hmm. and especially like you know, in the song we just listened to, the whistling part, trying to tune your whistling, <laughs> so hard. It's so yeah. hard. I've tried it and it's it's like impossible, um, but no, I, I I it never made me feel like oh I should have been a vocalist or I should have done this. But I, I always um, I, I I stand by the the fact that I switched to instrumental for a reason, and I am happy um, that I ended up on that path. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, as you know, I had never, uh, you know, other than elementary school choir, I never did any vocal vocal work. Mm -hmm. um, I had to take a class, but. Other than that, you know, I was always like, yeah, no, I, I, I don't really sing. You know, everyone, everyone rocks out in their car, but it doesn't count. Um, but I know, Sean, you know, you do some vocal work, too. And uh, in addition to your uh, instrumental work, and uh, when you hear something like this particular song, you know, what is it? Does it reaffirm your like of choral work? It does, definitely. Um, and I'm going to take a hot second break from that for a hot second. I'm going to address Kevin's, um, whistling technique for a hot second. We were just talking about that. Um, there's a piece that, um, that I got to, to work with, um, the wind ensemble this year. And I don't remember the name of the composer, but the piece is called and mountains rising out of nowhere. And it's this, it's Schwatner. Yes. Yes. Thank you. And there's the section right at the end where you have to whistle and the whistling, like writing it out, he writes 15A. So you have to be whistling about like higher than expected for the, the human voice to actually do. And and most of the time, the the conductor's like, why can't you guys just go, and I can't get up, I can't, I can't whistle that like that right now. But just thinking about like the technique that you need to do something like that, it's just, it's, it's incredible, but... I mean, mm -hmm. but whistling in music is so underrated, I think. Uh, I wanted to just mention for a hot sec, I think it's, it's kind of interesting to think about. Um, but back to your question about the whole, like, um, the listening to this and getting reaffirmed. Um, absolutely. I got to say, um, my girlfriend, who is the, uh, who just graduated Ithaca College with me, uh, she's a choral conducting uh, uh, graduate student. She just graduated herself and... Um, that's where I'm quarantining right now in Maryland with her. <laughs> and um, she got coached by the King Singers. Like, she was yeah. conducting a piece. She was getting wow. ready for her recital, and they coached her on all this. And uh, believing that um, singing and playing coincides, it was kind of perfect. Like, you think about it. Like, they kept talking about it. They said, you have to sound like a trumpet, or you have to sound like a clarinet here. You have to sound like a... And I think it's interesting because sometimes a lot of music educators may say, I think this should sound like a voice, like you play vocalises. And so you might say, oh, this is going to sound like a voice, you know. Um, but it's interesting to think about it the other way. Sometimes when you're singing, you have to sort of sound like an instrument. 
which is kind of different. Uh, I didn't really think about that before. Um, uh, but, um, but yeah, I, my, my question to you, Kevin, is um, uh, what was it like to see you live? Because when I saw them live, they blew the roof off the place. Everyone was like, come back for a second, third encore, you know? So what do you think? Yeah, sure. No, I mean, obviously they perform really well, but... I think it's the the fact that you're seeing them live and they you know they make a show out of it. You don't want to just go there and and you know watch five guys on stage and just sing at you. Um, mm-hmm. They make it interesting. They involve the audience, so they really draw the people in and involve them in the the concert itself, which I think is why people love them so much. Um, and they've been around for a, a pretty long time, um, so they they must be doing something right. Mm-hmm. And you know, doing these coachings and doing these um, master classes um, with high schoolers, you know, helps train or helps inspire the, the next generation of uh, vocalists or, you know, music teachers or choral conductors or whatever it is, right. um, because they see like, hey, you know, these guys are making a living performing. Maybe that's something I want to look into as well. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, Kevin, we're going to have to take another break. Sure. But when you come back, we have the best quiz for you for on all wind ensemble related material. So you don't want to go anywhere and miss this epic event coming your way. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. And we're back with my friend Kevin. And Kevin, are you ready to take on the quiz of a lifetime? You have the wind ensemble repertoire ready to go. Me and Hunter are ready to show you what it's what it's to be the next you know, wind ensemble director. Are you ready to find out what all these pieces are? I just hope I don't embarrass myself. <laughs> Okay, all right, here we go. I want to mention to you, if you get all six right, I will owe you a beer and a appetizer somewhere at some point in time if I see you again. I would love to and love to catch up at some point. Um, and uh, let's see how you do. Here is number one. Do you have any thoughts, Kevin? None whatsoever. <laughs> this is for Wind Ensemble, you said? Uh, yeah, yeah, yes, technically, yeah. Okay. I, technically. I <laughs> um, this one is uh, When Jesus Wept, mm. written by William Schumann. Gotcha, gotcha. So was this a choral piece that was then adapted for Wind Ensemble? I think... I, I actually think it was written for a band. I think it was written for a military band initially. Um, and uh, I played this with uh, Mr. Gom uh, when I when I did um was in the um the youth or, uh, wind ensemble. Um, but it's kind of a nice piece. Uh, you ready to go to the next one? Sure. Here is the next one.
Any thoughts, Kevin? I, I, I played this tune, and I cannot for the life of me remember. Um, it's, it's not... It's not Mio, is it? It's not Mio. Ah, oh, no, then I have no idea. <laughs> so, so this one is uh, Percy Granger. Um, ah, no, I should have known that. I, I, <laughs> like, I when I said Mio, I was like, wait, wait, no, no, it's not French enough. It's gotta, it's gotta be an American, or you know, and it was Granger or right, something. I don't right. Know. Do you, uh, so now that you know that it's Granger, do you know the name of the piece? No, it's not no. Shepherd's Hay. It's not Danny Boy. No, um, no. this is not Children's March. And I think those are the only three I know right now. Okay, this is called Handle and the Strand. Oh, I do know that one. Yeah, so this one's actually based on um, his uh, thinking that, like, what it would be like if Handel walked into the streets and sort of saw what he saw in, you know, like, in, in uh, England. Or he moved to Germany at some point in time, so he would sort of, like, imagine what his life would be like. Or maybe he was from Germany, and then he moved to England at that point, I think. And that's what time. it was. He, yeah. he became an uh, English citizen. Right. I think oh, that... Yeah. So I, I, I didn't mean American composer. I should have said, like, I know. I just <laughs> threw me for you. An Anglo... Anglo-Saxon. Anglo-Saxon. That's right. All right. Here we go. Number three. Here we go. I just needed to get to that chord because that's the best, that's the best chord of the whole piece. All right. Uh, variations on a Korean folk song. That is absolutely correct. Do you know who it's written by? Uh, Chance, right? That is absolutely correct. Jones Bernard Chance. Awesome. All right, all right, all right. We'll make another deal with you. So if you get the rest of the four, I will still owe you a beer and an appetizer. Let's see how we do. Here we go. Here is the next one. thoughts i know i've played it and for some reason the the word resplendent comes to mind but i don't think that's the right piece of music do you know the composer no i don't unfortunately okay so so this is uh hounds of spring i've played (laughs) (laughs) oh boy alfred reed alfred reed um has written a lot of really great stuff like Armenian dances and um, a lot of really cool pieces. Um, he also wrote a piece for Ithaca College, actually called or- Orpheus. I think um, it was like this crazy, like elaborate work that was just kind of intense. I think he actually worked at Ithaca College for a little while. Not too, I don't think not too. Uh, uh, festival prelude. 
Yeah, that is just really fun to play. Um, and we actually did it together for um, uh, probably our first freshman year of um, school, I think. We did that uh, in concert band, I think. So, yes. All right. Well, without any further ado, here is the next one. Any thoughts, Kevin? I heard a laugh by Hunter. Mm. <laughs> I, again, I've played this before. I know this is like an excerpt on audition rep. So sure, like, yeah. Um, a festival overture. That know? was so close. Um, close. So close. Festival variations. Festival oh. variations. CT <laughs> CT Smith. Ripping horn part. I had this on an audition list for the Coast Guard band a couple years ago, and I looked at it. I was like, "Are you serious? Like, it's just on like high seas the entire time. It's just like really ridiculous." Oh, yeah. So, yeah, that one's that one's a fun one. I like that one. All right, here's the last one, Kevin. So far, you only gotten one, but I I know you know all these pieces, so uh-huh. I'll make you a deal. If you get this last one, I will owe you a beer the next time I see you. So, let's let's see if you can get this one. Here is the last one. Thoughts on that one, Kevin? Procession of the Nobles? Oh no! <laughs> Was it academic overture? No. Wait, oh, come on. I was so confident that it was Procession of the Nobles. <laughs> I know it's like it's something that I've played for graduation time and time again because it's so regal. Right, right, uh, right. Think Russian. Yeah. Oh, uh, is it, it's not. It's Sh- oh, uh, right. Yeah, Sostakovich. Festival Overture. Festival Overture. There you go. That's it. (laughs) I I, I am embarrassed. I need a brush up on my ensemble repertoire. (laughs) Kevin, I want to thank you for being here today. Um, You conquered the podcast. You got to the end. Is there anything you want to share with us before we get going here? Uh, I just want to say thank you very much for having me on. You know, it was uh, great to, to think about music on a different level um especially just being at home with the babies all the time you know they can only say certain things and you know, they're not really <laughs> they're not really challenging me intellectually um so to hear these pieces again and to to kind of this little quiz at the end was really it was a lot of fun so i wanted to thank you guys both for having me on yeah my, our pleasure um hunter do you want to ask anything pleasure. else no i just want to thank you you're a wonderful guest very insightful thank you yeah. All right. Thanks, Kevin. I'll see you around. That one's good. Ciao, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. And you've been listening to Music Speaks, a podcast for lovers of music everywhere. Next week, we will have Julia Ilya on the show discussing her love of theater and her move to Romania. And that's it for me. I'm Sean Ramkunis. And I'm Hunter Sagana. And keep listening to, to what, what you, you love. love.